Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Our scripture this morning is out of Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief of priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Go behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. What if everything you've been taught about success and what constitutes the good life is wrong. A few years ago, a representative for Teach America went to Duke University to speak to the student body there. You may be familiar with Teach for America. They take some of America's brightest students and they take them to some of America's worst public schools to, uh, to teach. Uh, so this representative was, was at Duke, he's standing before the student body, and uh, he says something to this effect. He said, um, I, I believe I made a mistake today. I believe I came here and uh, I, I don't really think that uh, you're gonna hear what I have to say um, because I, I, I think you guys have a different agenda. He goes, you, you, they told me before I got here that you are the BMW uh, uh, college university and I can tell by looking at the parking lot that indeed you are. You've already achieved a lot of success and you are on a trajectory to achieve a whole lot more success. And I'm here, I'm here today to convince you to throw your life away. I'm here today to convince you to take uh, a job in one of the, or take one of the worst jobs you'll ever find. I wanna convince you to go to the hollows of West Virginia, to the ghettos of South Los Angeles. Last year, two of our teachers were killed on the job. So I doubt any of you are interested in anything I have to say. So go to grad school, make your millions, live a life of comfort, 
live a life of success. But if by chance you're interested in the worst job in America, I have some brochures with me. See me afterwards. You know what happened after that? He got mobbed by students saying, give me one of those brochures. There's something within us that wants to be challenged to live for something more than comfort and success and money and everything else that the world says we need to have. And he touched that nerve that day. Today, in the scripture reading, you heard the greatest challenge, the ultimate challenge ever given to human beings. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. There's no greater challenge than that. But when you pick up a cross, understand, you are carrying a cross to your death. It is the ultimate challenge. So today we, um, we get to the midway point of our series uh, on the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospels, the fastest paced of the four Gospels, and we get exactly to the halfway point. One of the things you'll, you'll learn, if you haven't already, as you've studied the Scriptures, and especially the Gospels, is that they are masterfully written. Not just are they, these are the inspired words of God, but um, the, the, the writers here, John Mark, who got his material from Peter, who was the eyewitness disciple of Jesus, is just so well written. Right here at the halfway point, we kind of have this turning point. Not kind of, we do. The whole Gospel of Mark is playing out this identity mystery. Who is this man from Nazareth? Now, he tells us, the readers, in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, the Son of God. So we know that right off the bat. And some demons know it, but uh, some foreigners, they, find, they figure it out. But the people of God, the folks who should know it, they don't get it. They don't know it. And so we're reading this story like, are they gonna figure it out? Are the disciples themselves gonna figure it out? That's where we get to this point in Mark chapter eight. I think that's rain, isn't it? Yay, I've been praying for that, Mike. Yeah, how about it? Yeah, a few applause. Yeah, yeah, I, we want that. My yard's looking pretty pitiful, probably like yours. Um, and so today, though, in this passage, we hear two challenges, big challenges. First is about the identity of Jesus. He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he turns it on them. Who do you say I am? Friends, your answer to that question, I cannot stress the importance of it. It will set the course of your life for eternity. And then he speaks to the disciples again about this thing called discipleship and following him. And he issues a second challenge. So as we get to the midway point of the Gospel of Mark, at this turning point, Friends, this could represent a turning point for you today. I, I, I don't like exaggeration. I don't like hyperbole, uh, except when it really works well. Um, this could be the turning point of your life today. Um, first, you gotta get Jesus' identity right. Um, it says here in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, you know that this is in the northernmost part of the country. 
and they were in Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. It's a long journey. I've taken that journey four times. It's about, depending on traffic and which way you go, it's a one to two hour drive. So it's a long walk. It probably took them at the, usually the leisurely pace that they walked in those days, probably took them better part of two days. So Jesus takes them there for the express purpose of getting to this central question, the central issue of Mark, who is this man? He takes them there to have the backdrop because it's very critical. The setting says it all. In fact, the setting really gives us a big clue. What was significant about Caesarea Philippi? Well, you'll notice it's a Roman name. It's not a Jewish Hebrew name. It's not, and it has nothing to do with the history of Israel, um, except it's in part of Israel. It was a Roman colony. In fact, it was the epicenter of emperor worship. If you know from your world history, um, when, the, when Rome went from a republic to an empire, the emperor became a deity-like figure in the eyes of the people and was worshiped. And you were expected to give your ultimate allegiance to the emperor as a deity, as a god. And so Caesarea Philippi was this place where you would come and de declare your allegiance to Caesar. With that in the backdrop, Jesus sets him up, himself up as a different kind of king, a different kind of leader. And so he asked the question, on the way, he said, who do people say that I am? Now remember, the crowds don't get it. And so we hear different answers. Some say John the Baptist, he was killed earlier, so maybe John has been raised from the dead. That was the speculation. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. You see, they don't get it about Jesus. They think he's just another prophet. There are millions of people in the world today who think Jesus is just another prophet. And he turns it. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now he doesn't say, as Matthew records, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's a reason for that. Because that ultimate revelation of his identity doesn't come until the end of Mark. I'll have the last message in this series where we'll see it coming from the lips of the least likely person. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And so that he turns to his disciples. And really through the pages of scripture and the voice of the Holy Spirit, he asks you, who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you don't know. And maybe you need some time to figure it out. If you are in that place, you need to go to the Alpha course. It would be such an amazing journey for you because we will go through that course to answer this very question, who is Jesus? But it's the most important question you'll ever be asked and the most important answer you'll ever give. Jesus warned them in verse 30 not to tell anyone. Say, wait a minute, if it's so important, <laughs> Why does Jesus say, don't tell anyone? If you read the Gospels, you know that that happens on numerous occasions. He heals somebody, shh, don't tell anyone. He, he, he does a great miracle, shh, don't tell anybody. Now, uh, in theological circles, this was one of those things you learn in seminary, they call this the messianic secret. Why? Because, here's the reason. The, the tensions in Rome were so great. 
We talk about today America being a divided nation and a lot of polarization, a lot of animosity. Friends, it pales in comparison to the first century. There was great tension. You could cut the tension with a knife in the streets. It was so tense. And people were tired of Rome. And we see within one generation of the New Testament, they rise up and rebel, and Rome absolutely crushes them. Tens of thousands slaughtered. And so there's this tension in the air. And there's this, this longing for Messiah, the longing for the, the Messiah to come and to save them from Rome. And all Jesus had to do, he's, he's done these miracles, he's fed 5,000 people with a, you know, a few morsels of fish and bread. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed people. All he has to do is stand up on a busy streetcar and say, I'm the Messiah. And people would be home, going home, grabbing their swords, running there, and a crowd would, a mob would gather, and it would be game on, war on. Jesus can't risk that. It's not his mission. And so he has, to low, he has to downplay this whole messianic talk because people don't get it. They don't understand and it would just cause more problems that it would help. And so he says, don't tell anyone. And then in verse 31, he then began to teach them. Notice this is not something that happens all at once. He began to teach them. Why? There's this misunderstanding that had been a misunderstanding for generations about who the Messiah was. And so now he has to teach them. Now, um, I'm going to let this represent uh, their expectations of what the Messiah was. They have a dollar sign because that's kind of like a universal symbol in America of success. All right? Um, For centuries, the Jewish people had been taught that the Messiah would, would do a number of things. First, he would, clean, he would cleanse the temple. Uh, secondly, he would defeat all of their enemies. And thirdly, he would establish God's justice in a very unjust world. All right? And so it says he began to teach them. He begins to take apart, to deconstruct, if you will, their understanding of the Messiah. You know, it's possible you go through life and circumstances and life's events and sometimes really bad preaching and teaching can fill you with ideas about God that are not right. Sometimes we have to go through a little deconstruction process of our own. And so he begins to systematically deconstruct what the disciples have believed all along about the Messiah. Now you gotta understand, um, uh, this, they've been taught this by their parents and their grandparents and their grandparents have been taught by their parents. Okay, this is deeply ingrained in who they are. He says, he began to teach them that the son of man, I'll stop right there, son of man. Jesus takes on this title. Now wait, I thought he's the son of God. Yes. Is that kind of a more humble way of saying I'm also human and I was born to a, a human mother and it's just my way of staying humble? No, it's actually a reference to an obscure passage in Daniel that a lot of people just didn't understand what it was. It's Daniel chapter seven. The first half of Daniel tells the story of Daniel and uh, the Hebrews in exile, but the second half is prophetic. Look at Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. It says here, in my vision, Daniel is speaking, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, only place it's used in the Old Testament, coming with the clouds of heaven. Hmm. 
He approached the ancient of days. Earlier in the chapter, we've been told the ancient of days is God himself sitting on the throne. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You think I'm the Messiah, you are right. I'm not just the Messiah, I'm the son of man. All authority in heaven and earth will be given to me and I will reign over heaven and earth forever and ever. Yeah, that's awesome. But then what he says next would have completely taken them by surprise. They never would have put these two things, concepts in the same sentence. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. Suffer? The son of man? God? No one had associated Messiah and suffering. Now, it was there on the pages of the Old Testament everywhere to be seen, the suffering servant, but they assumed that the suffering servant was Israel. They thought it was them and their history of uh, being oppressed and their history of, of heartache. No. There's a deconstruction that has to take place here about who the Messiah is. He must suffer many things. And then he spells it out for him. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're leading theologians and scholars and spiritual advisors are going to reject him. That he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Killed. What? We've been taught since we were kids the Messiah would kill our enemies. Who are you talking about? The Messiah would be killed? This is, this is it's wrong. It, 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 it contradicts everything they had ever been told. And quite frankly, Peter is furious about this. It says, he spoke, Jesus spoke plainly about this. No, no metaphors, no hidden stories. He just tells them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, you got to understand, the word rebuke is a strong word. Um, I don't know, I kind of had pictured this earlier, you know, before. It's like, oh, you know, Peter kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, you know, we, we, we think we have different ideas about how this is going to work out. I wouldn't really say that. That's not good for your PR campaign and all the marketing that you're going to die. So, no, 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 no. He rebuked him. The word rebuke is, is, a, is a strong denunciation, a strong correction. It's the same word that is used when Jesus would rebuke demons and tell them to shut up and be quiet. It's strong. And so when Peter is rebuking Jesus, I picture some volume to his voice. He's speaking loud, some anger in his voice, and he is letting Jesus know in no uncertain terms. The Messiah doesn't do that. The Messiah is a winner. The Messiah is not a loser. He doesn't die. What are you talking about, Jesus? He's angry. I mean, he's really angry. Um... And then Jesus turns the tables on him. He said, but Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely 
human concerns. Now, if you, if you are familiar with the Gospels and the story, you know that it seems like something was left out. It seemed like something was left out. Yeah, the whole speech that Jesus gives to Peter when he gets the answer right. When he uh, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew, Pete, Jesus looks at Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Man, what a great speech. What a great combination. Peter, Peter was always kind of the one to first speak up. It's not a surprise that Peter would say this first. Gets this glowing, oh man, you're the best, Peter. And he's got to be, you know, feeling pretty good about that. You know, the teacher said you got the right answer. Didn't always kind of feel good, you know. And, and man, he got the right answer. But he leaves all that out. Remember, who's the source for Mark? It's Peter. Maybe he leaves it out of humility. But he leaves in the other part. Get behind me, Satan. For you don't have in mind God's ways, but, God, uh, man, but man's. Maybe because Peter discovered later that he learned more from the rebuke than he did from the praise. You know, a good healthy rebuke from someone who loves you is not a bad thing. In fact, in Proverbs 27, I think five, it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Peter, when he got rebuked by Jesus like this, it showed him who Jesus was. Now, you, you could fault Peter, and he makes a lot of mistakes, and he's brash, and he's rash, and he says things first, he speaks before he thinks, but let me tell you something, he loved Jesus. He loved him. And so later, I think he said, you know, I learned more, what I needed to hear from Jesus that day was that rebuke more than I needed to hear the words of commendation. Jesus is a king, but he's not just any kind of king. He's a king on a cross. And this, Peter was not willing to hear, that this would represent success, that this, going to his death, going to the cross, is what Messiah came for. Um, he's, who is this man? Who is this guy? He's the king, but he's the king on a cross. Now, notice it doesn't end there. After three days, he'll rise again. Okay? Doesn't end with bad news. It ends with good news. But the way to get to life is not through what the world often says you find life. It's through the cross. And you go through the cross, you wind up at the empty tomb. And Jesus went there for us. But now Jesus turns it to us. And we have a cross to bear. So getting, getting Jesus' identity right means figuring out your identity too. All right, so turn to verse 34. And Jesus uses this thing as a teaching time for them. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. 
Maybe you've heard those words frequently. You've been in church most of your life. You've heard them a number of times. And sometimes there are, um, you know, common interpretations given to them. You know, we think deny yourself, kind of self-denial, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to fast. And fasting is a spiritual discipline. So I'm going to go without food. And, and that's a way of denying myself. Or during Lent, I'm not going to eat sweets, you know. Um, and maybe that's what's being talked about here. Not really. This is not about self-denial. There are places where you deny yourself certain things so you can focus on prayer, yes, to draw closer to God. That's not what he means here. He mean, he's mean saying no to your agenda. You see, Peter had an agenda. It was Messiah cleans the temple, kicks out Rome, establishes justice, and brings back the golden era of David's reign. That wasn't God's agenda. It's not God's. And so some deconstruction had to take place in Peter's life. Um, so deny yourself is saying no to your agenda. And pick up your cross and follow. Now again, we have some uh, common kind of street interpretations of that. It's like we talk about having a cross to bear. You know, man, my knee has really been causing me a lot of trouble. Probably going to have to have a knee replacement surgery at one point. Yeah, I guess that's just my cross to bear. Or, you know, I live with my uncle, and man, he's a really difficult dude. That's my cross to bear. If you're a Chicago Cubs fan, we know what your cross to bear is. Right, we all say, well, it's my cross to bear. No, I'm not putting up with you know, an inconvenience or even some physical pain here or there. There's only one thing they did with people on a cross. It was a, it was a path to death, to die to ourselves. Paul will later say, I've been crucified with Christ. He took this very seriously. Um, so what is this? What does this mean for us? Well, just like um, Peter and the other disciples in the first century had to have some little deconstruction going on, we have to have some deconstruction about what really matters in life. What constitutes success? How do we find ourselves? Because he talks, he goes on here and he says things like this. He says, whoever wants to, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for the sake, for me and for the the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Can anyone give, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is this, yourself, your soul? What is this? It's your identity. It's who you are. You see, when you figure out the identity of Jesus, it leads you to figuring out your identity. But first, it's about Jesus. And then when you do that, you get a whole new understanding of what your identity is. Paul will later summarize it with two very simple words that this defines and describes the life of the Christian in Christ. I am in Christ. My life is wrapped up in Christ. All that I am is wrapped up in him. Now, here's the deal. Your life is wrapped up in something. Trust me. Every culture has a definition for what constitutes success and what it looks like. What it looks like to... Uh, to, to do well, to, to discover yourself, to, 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 uh, to matter, to be valuable. Every culture has definitions. And in America, in the West, it's often your career. Your career defines your identity. And if you're successful at your career, it allows you um, uh, maybe wealth, allows you to buy the home you want to buy, allows you to buy, and so it looks like, it can look like material success, but it first wraps, it's wrapped up in, in what you do, 
Or sometimes it can be wrapped up in, in, in how popular you are or how much power you have, how much, how much influence you have. It can look like different things, but every career um, has some sort of definition attached to it. Your career might be about how, money, how much money you make, how many sales. Uh, if you're an athlete, you know, it's, it's athletic success, it's having records, it's getting your name in the book. We pastors do the same thing, you know. We'll, we'll compare with each other. We can be so competitive and we, we can talk about the size of our church and it's like that gives us our identity. But here's the deal, friends. Everything you wrap yourself up in, it says this makes me valuable. It's all performance-based, by the way, all of it. Will ultimately let you down. That's why Jesus says, whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. It happens all the time. One of the first pastoral visits I ever had, I was 25 years old, just graduated seminary. I'm living in Leadwood. And um, a man comes to see me, and, and he was really old. He was like 50 years old, okay? And I'm, you know, I'm 25, I'm trying to get this guy. And, and he was down, he couldn't even look me in the eyes. When he graduated high school, he started working for St. Joe Lead Company. And Leadwood, they had booming mining industry there. It was the biggest lead district in the world. And he'd just been laid off, like a month before. He couldn't even look me in the eye, and he was devastated. Devastated because his job gave him his identity. He had lost his job. Just finished a, a great book by Arthur Brooks called From Strength to Strength, and it talks about what uh, the second half of your life can look like. Anyway, he said he was inspired to write this book when he was traveling on a plane one day, and he said he overheard a conversation. He couldn't help but overhear it. A couple, older couple behind him were talking. And this um, a man says something, and the woman uh, you know, pipes in and, and with kind of strong you know, tone in her voice says, oh, it's not true that nobody needs you anymore. And he, he says, the man mumbles something, assume they're husband and wife. And then she, she speaks up even louder. Would you stop saying you better, you're better off dead than alive? So he's got his attention, right? So they go back and forth like this for a while. The flight happens. He doesn't know who's behind him, but he's picturing in his mind, you know, this guy's, you could tell by his voice, this older gentleman, maybe he had all kinds of dreams and he never achieved. And maybe he wanted to go to this college or university and he never was able to go. Or maybe he wanted to start that company and never got started. Maybe he, he, he you know, had, had hopes for success, never achieved it. Uh, and then he had to retire early or whatever. But he says, he's, flight's over, lights come on. They stand up, he turns behind them, and he says it's a man everybody in our country would recognize. He never gives the name in the book. He says, I was shocked. It's a man in his mid-80s, universally uh, admired for his heroism, his patriotism, and um, uh, his stunning successes in life. He said, a household name. And this man had lost everything that mattered to him because he lost his public persona, his fame. He says, so they're walking out of the plane and the pilot, I guess word got up to the pilot that this man, this famous man was on his flight. So he comes out and he goes up to the man. He says, man, I, he says, sir, I have admired you since I was a little boy. And he said, the man beamed and he, he stood up a little more straight and he walked out. 
because what, for a few fleeting seconds, he got his identity back. But I bet it wasn't two days, and he's, already, and he's telling his wife, I'd be better off dead than alive. For you see, if you wrap your identity up in anything else, you're gonna be disappointed. You're gonna wind up losing. There's only one thing that you can wrap your identity up. There's only one person you were meant to wrap your identity around, and that's Jesus. Um, coming to him. He says, if you lose your life, surrender it to me and for the gospel. I mean, you can't just say, well, you know, I'm gonna stop living for money and live for God. No, it's gotta be lived out in community with other people. If you will give yourself to me and for the gospel, you will lose your life, but you'll save it. He said, God, cross, that's so depressing. Yeah, cross is hard, but it's followed by an empty tomb. We all want life. We all want something that's going to outlast us. We all want something that's meaningful, significant, and valuable, and you will not find it in the dollar sign. You will not find it in your career. You will not find it in, in fame. You will not find it in being loved by that certain person. You will only find it in Jesus. And that's the call to discipleship. Peter, though, he's, he's mad and he's negotiating. Here's the deal. Jesus pulls him aside and rebukes him. You don't negotiate with a king. You can negotiate with a president, a senator, a governor. You don't negotiate with a king. You submit or not. You submit. Now here, he's calling us to submit out of love because he's going to go to the cross and as we'll see in the last week, he will lose his identity so we can find ours. And again, Peter is angry at this message. And if you really listen to the implications of what I'm saying today, you might be angry if you're honest with yourself. You mean everything I've been giving myself to in the end ultimately doesn't matter. That makes me angry. Very true. To quote Ted Lasso, who partly quotes Jesus, the truth will set you free. But first, it's going to piss you off. The stuff you're giving yourself to, it's gonna end up disappointing you in the end. There's only one thing that will make it, and that's giving yourself to Jesus. Um, because when you look to his life at the one who loves you and gives himself to you, you will submit, not out of fear. We submit to earthly rulers out of fear and trepidation. No, we submit out of love and respect. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, once you see the Son of God loving you like that, you begin to get a new strength and assurance, a sense of your own value and distinctiveness that's not based on what you're doing or whether somebody loves you, whether you've lost weight or how much money you've got, you're free. You're really free. The old approach to identity, that's what we're talking about, our identity, is lost and a new one is found in Jesus um, so, what if everything you've been told about success and what constitutes the good life is wrong? Would you be angry? It's all right. Peter was. He came around because he discovered what true life and where it's found. C.S. Lewis, in 
Probably, I would say mere Christianity is in the top three of books that have influenced me over the years. I read it first as a teenager, read it a couple other times in my life, and on the closing pages of, of uh, um, mere Christianity, he says, the more, we get, the, more we, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my heredity, upbringing, surroundings, and desires. He says, all of that. When I give up myself to him, I find life. You see, living in the kingdom is not a matter of making a couple minor adjustments, starting to go to church and being a spiritual person, trying to live a moral life. It's not minor adjustments. It's death to yourself, death to your agenda, death to what you think success looks like, death to all of that, and life to Jesus. It's the cross. And the cross is always followed by the empty tomb. Everything you've desired, everything you've hungered for, everything you've wanted is found in him, but first you have to die to your own agenda. Um, even doing something noble like taking a job with Teach for America, that's a great thing. If you do it, I'll applaud. But even that won't give you ultimate significance. Only this will. And so, I think there's two invitations in this passage of scripture. The first is confess Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And when you get that right, it leads to other things, but first you gotta get that right. Going back to C.S. Lewis, he said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, what you might call success every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing you've not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find only in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you find him and everything else thrown in. Who is Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the way to life, even if it contradicts everything we've been told, just like it contradicted everything Peter had been told his whole life. Thank you, Jesus, that you stand there in front of us as the one who is life himself. You are life. And when we lose ourselves, we find it in you. Thank you. With eyes closed, just... Have you confessed Christ? Is he more than a prophet? Is he Messiah? And is he king on his terms? Are you willing to come with no negotiations, a complete and absolute unconditional surrender? So you're invited. You're invited to say yes. In Jesus' name. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing. And if you have not confessed Christ, again, it's the most important thing that you ever do. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to do that very thing. 
And uh, you can let us know by that, that QR code. I just take your phone, point it out, or take you this thing called the guide. And down the, if you scroll down, there's a place that says commitment to Christ. Today I will commit or recommit my life to Jesus. You do that, and we'll get back with you this week with more information. Or you can go out in the lobby and talk with someone at, at Next Steps about it. But I want you to consider this person, Jesus, and who he is as we sing. There's another appeal here. It's part two of this word that Jesus says. Immediately turns the crowd and says, whoever wants to be my disciple has to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. To be a member of the kingdom of God doesn't mean a little minor adjustment here or there. That's why what we've been saying to you all year long about taking your next significant step to Jesus, I will say is the most important appeal you're gonna hear this year. You may land a great deal at work, great. A few years from now, nobody will remember it and it'll leave you empty in the end. But this, following Jesus, if the king is right, and the king's always right, this will lead you to life. So what significant step will you take? We, we, we gave you the card when you came in. What, what's your next significant step? Where, where are you going to say no to your agenda? And where are you gonna say yes to his agenda? What, what, what act of discipleship are you gonna, it's not about you know, performance, it's, it's, this is a response in love to the one who loved us. Paul said it this way, he said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We respond because he loved us so much. It's not to pay him back or to earn anything. You, you've already loved completely. But as a disciple, you say no to your agenda. And so, yes, I'm gonna join that class. Yes, I'm gonna use my spiritual gifts to serve you in this way. Yes, I'm gonna do that thing. What is it? I found that as Christians, the only way to keep us alive is to keep us moving. It's like Christianity is like riding a bicycle. You're either going forward or you're falling off. You gotta keep going forward. So I finally, Lynn and I have been talking about this and, and what my next step is this year is I'm gonna pray with my wife every night before we go to bed. Our prayer life, sometimes it's kind of hit and miss. But my next step is I'm gonna make this a habit to honor the king. The last thing I do is pray with the one I love most in this world to the one who loves me most of all. That's what I'm doing. I know what your step's gonna be. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.